Hello, my name is uh, Brian Kajajian. I am the editor-in-chief at ClassicRockHistory.com. And today I'm very excited to have here with us Jim Valens, the legendary songwriter who's written so many hits uh, in rock and roll music and pop music. Um, Jim started his career with a band called Prism in, in Canada. He left that band, I believe, after one album. And then he met a young songwriter, rocker, named Brian Adams, when I think Brian Adams was only 18 years old. Um, their songwriting partnership uh, turned Brian Adams into a huge rock and roll star, delivering huge hits like Summer of 69, Run to You, and, and just so many more. But beyond his songwriting partnership with Brian Adams, Jim Valance has written so many other hits, and he's worked with so many other bands, from Aerosmith to Hart to Roger Daltrey, uh, one of our favorites here, Bachman Turner Overdrive, Alice Cooper, Joe Cocker, Joan Jett, Kiss, Ozzy Osbourne, so many more. Um, Jim, it's it's great to have you here today. I'm going to give you a nice New York welcome. How you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Thanks for having me. It, it's nice to talk with somebody who's actually sharing the same weather that I am, because I'm in New York too. And I, and I believe you're in New York right now, are you? Actually, I have an apartment in New York, but I'm actually currently in uh, Maplewood, New Jersey. Okay. Well, we're not that it's far. Yeah. New Jersey is, uh, you know, that's our brother, you know. I can see you across the, yeah. across the river. Across the river. That's right. You know, you, you climb to the Empire State Building and there's what we used to call Giant Stadium. Now it's MetLife Stadium and you could you could see all that stuff. So um, how do you like living in Manhattan? Do you, do I you love it. There? I mean, you know, I, I was taking advantage of everything the city had to offer. Uh, I'm talking pre-COVID. So, you know, uh, we'd go to shows a couple of nights a week, out for dinner, go to concerts. I'd uh, jump in an Uber, jump on the subway, you know, take a bus across town. And then COVID just shut the whole thing down. I mean, uh, it was a scary place to be in, uh, you know, March 2020. Um, and I remember... Um, Broadway, which is one of the busiest streets in the world, really, traffic-wise. I remember March 2020, there was not a car on Broadway. You could walk right up the middle of the of the street and, and not encounter a taxi or a car. So uh, in the autumn of 2020, we moved out to the suburbs. It just felt safer out here. And now we're just starting, literally recently starting to regain a bit of our old pre-COVID lives. Yeah, that was a scary time. You know, I have a lot of doctors that I go to in Manhattan. So I was in there, you know, often during the pandemic. And um, I remember going to Times Square and just looking around going, I've never been to Times Square before. And there's nobody here. Yeah, yeah. There was just nobody. I, it reminded me of that movie. It's an old Charlton Heston movie, The Omega Man. I don't know if you remember. Yeah, yeah. I do. He was the uh, the last man on Earth. And um, it well, along with a whole bunch of zombies, um, but it reminded me of that time. Yeah, did you see uh, Will? Um, what was that movie? Uh, I Am Legend. Yeah, the Will Smith remake. Another, yeah. another zombie movie where uh, yeah. he's the last guy. That was actually the same story. I think. I think the Omega Man was originally the book I Am Legend, and so that oh, was okay. Yeah, it was actually this. It was the same exact story. Um, you know, they changed things around a little, but it, that's what it reminded me of, you know, everywhere in the city was just, there was nobody around. Um, yeah. it was nice though, to be able to drive into the city without any traffic. I mean, truly, but you know, I missed 
all of it so much. And I mean, we were uber cautious. I mean, uh, literally three years. Uh, I didn't go uh, on a bus in a taxi on the subway in a restaurant to a concert. Uh, literally three years, nothing. So we're just in the last few months starting to uh, to get a bit of it back. It was a tough time for musicians. Um, you know, I have a yeah. lot. Of, I have a lot of friends, myself included. We all had gigs canceled. There was no work. Yeah. But for people who yeah. made a living playing music, that was tough. Um, it was rough for working musicians. Yeah. Do you now? Are you from? Do you live like in Lower Manhattan on the Upper East Side, Upper West Side, Central? What area? Seventy uh, Third and Broadway, so Upper West Side. Oh, okay, on the Upper West Side. Um, yeah, but I, I love the the whole island. I mean, there's not a place on the island that I don't love. I love going to Soho. Love going to Midtown. It's just such a wonderful city. There's great restaurants on every block. Do you have any particular favorite yeah. ones? Uh, well, well, there's one really near me. Um, Cafe Luxembourg that is just so easy for me to pop down from from my apartment. Um, I had dinner a few nights ago at Trattoria dell'Arte just off Columbus Circle. Had an amazing Italian meal there. So, and I say amazing because again, for three years I didn't set foot in a restaurant. So I'm I'm just so grateful to be to be back and and enjoying enjoying Manhattan again. Yeah, I mean you could find any any type of food you want there in Manhattan. Truly. Yeah, I once did a video once where I said I'm going to bring you to the um, the greatest place to eat in Manhattan, and I walked down the block. And I went to one of the corner hot dog stands because that's something that I love. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, sometimes I I really enjoy the street uh, for, uh, corner food. Um, now, yeah, I've got a picture. I found a picture recently: John Lennon and Yoko Ono on bicycles at a street vendor hot dog stand. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, I'll, I'll send it to you. I'll find it. Yeah, it looks like it's down around, um, uh, say, 9th and 9th and uh, whatever's down there. What's that market? Chelsea Market, I think, was down there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because they lived up, uh, you know, at the Dakota originally, Central Park. Uh, no, originally they were in Soho. Oh, they were originally in Soho. Okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. When they first, when they first came to, um, uh, New York, forget what year it was, like early 70s, maybe 72. The, the first place that they had an apartment in Soho on Bank Street, and the apartment belonged to uh, Joe Butler, the drummer for um, Love and Spoonful. And they, okay. sub, they sublet it from him. And then at some point, they, they bought the uh, place at the Dakota. Have you ever been to uh, Cat's Dog Atessin down there downtown? In a I haven't. Probably the best pastrami you'll ever have. Pretty good. Pretty Where is good. it? It's uh, I believe it's off of uh, Bleecker Street. Okay. Yeah, I can't remember the exact address of that. It's I've heard the, of it. Yeah, and there's there's also Second Avenue Deli, which there's one on Third Avenue actually, which is also pretty good. Um, I like sampling all the oh, different restaurants. Now I'm getting now I'm getting hungry. <laughs> <laughs> Now you're originally though you're from Canada, correct? Am I correct? I am. Grew up yeah. on the west coast in and around Vancouver. Uh, was it Chilliwack? I, I believe I read. That I area? was born in Chilliwack. Yeah, okay. that's a little town about an hour east of Vancouver. I was born there, but I think I think we left there when I was two or three years old. So never really lived there, but my grandmother did. So I went back often. So you know, it's a place that I have I have good memories of. Now we we do share some Canadian roots. Uh, my mother was born in Montreal. Cool, that's a nice city. 
Yeah, and uh, I have I had an uncle who owned a recording up there, a recording studio up there called Montreal Sound. And yeah. uh, what I love about Canada is their candy. They have a <laughs> very their candy is very different from uh, the candy. Really? Okay. Yeah, they use a different I've type. Never heard of that. Well, I've noticed it my whole yeah. entire life. There's <laughs> 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 a vision going up there. Um, they use a. They still use sugar, I believe. They don't use the high fructose corn syrup that they use here. Okay. But every, anytime I get up to Montreal, I make sure that I bring myself back some uh, Canadian candy bars. And yeah. some of them are the exact same ones that they make here in the U.S. You know, you can get a Kit Kat. Up I, here. I know. Well, I, I like, um, not, it's not candy, but I like um, Cheeto Puffs. You know, you know what I mean? They're... Uh... They're like a little, they're about the size of your finger, little orange Cheeto puffs. And they make them here in the U.S. and they make them in Canada. But the ones in Canada taste better. And, and you know, maybe you're onto something. Oh, yes, <laughs> I think I am. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I have I have tasted many different candies. And um, and when you look at the ingredients, you see the difference in the ingredients. Um, so okay. is there anything else you miss about Canada, though? Like any other foods that you can't get here? Um. Gosh, you know, um, uh, Smarties. I don't know if you have Smarties down here. Yeah, I actually. Well, I actually brought a bag of them recently. Yeah, yeah, they're like M M&M. and M. It's Canada's version of M and M, but I, I actually prefer Smarties to M and M. So that's that's one thing, one thing I miss. But um, you know, I mean, Canada is a great place to to grow up, but you know, it's 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 a very small country. The you know population is about thirty five million. USA is 350 million. You know, um, most of the population of Canada is along along the border, like, you know, Vancouver, Montreal, Toronto. Um, I mean, it's a nice place. Uh, in fact, sometimes what I say is Canada, you know, the good news is it's really nice. The bad news is it's really nice. <laughs> I, just, I just like the grit in New York. I like the, the attitude down here. Yeah. Yes. Some people love it. I mean, I love it. I I, I was born in Manhattan and you know, I've grown up here, but others, you know, they don't. I guess it's just uh, whatever floats your boat. Um, really? But I have found, and, and I, I think this is one thing that people don't realize that even though everything moves kind of fast in New York, anybody will lend a hand whenever you need it. You know, people are much more friendlier than uh, people outside of this state or city realize. You know, yeah, people. It wasn't always that way. My my first memories of New York when I first visited back in the in the nineteen seventies was there was attitude, but it it bordered on on rudeness. It was almost a badge of honor to see how rude you could be. And I remember (laughs) going into into Manny's music and looking at a bass on the hanging behind the counter, and I said, "Um, "Can I try that bass?" And he's like, "What do you pay on cash or credit cards?" You know, it's like. It was just like, you know, but, and and after 9-11, I, I found kindness sort of, there was more of it in, in Manhattan. It was less attitude and, and more of what you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, I brought a lot of equipment at Manny's and there's that, that's what, 48th Street, I believe, where all the music stores yeah. were. Yeah. It's just kind of the feel in those stores. It's always been mm-hmm. like that. You know, uh, those stores have always been kind of, you know, musicians who work at night are in there during the daytime. And um, yeah. yeah, 
that those were crazy places. Um, I don't think I think Manny's closed. Uh, and yes, I don't think it's there anymore. Yeah. yeah, maybe about ten years ago. I think Sam Ash might still be there. Um, Guitar Center. Yeah, but I think you're right. I think yeah, things did change a lot after nine eleven. Um, because it was the one time where the people in the city really, really came together, and yeah. So I guess you know we're we're talking about food, and I love talking about food and restaurants and culture. <laughs> we'll probably talk a little bit about music. Um, okay. I you know I was I was looking on your on your website, and I was in like ten pages into the albums that you worked on, and I realized I'm still in the A's. There's so much <laughs> here. Yeah. And, and wow, there's just there's so much to talk about. So um there was one question I wanted to get to. I didn't want to run out of time with this, and and it was something that I found very interesting. Um you had mentioned that one of the highlights of your career was having the privilege to work with uh Jeff Lynn and Steve J on Brian Adams' get up album. And I wanted mm -hmm. to know why that was such a highlight for you. Well, for starters, I'm I'm a huge Jeff Lynne fan from way way back, and you know, sort of a, a vicarious second generation fan because Jeff was such a Beatle fan, and I'm such a Beatle fan. So I almost got to enjoy the Beatles all over again through through Jeff's eyes. For first, as you know, listening to ELO years back, and then actually getting to spend time with him. He's just such a I mean, such a nice guy to start with but just so brilliantly talented and responsible for so much amazing music. So it was really, you know, an honor and, and humbling and even a little bit kind of like, you know, pinch yourself to be in, in the same room with this guy and, and, and have the privilege of, of working with him. Um, so, yeah, that was, you know, it was, you, you can have a bucket list of all the people you'd love to work with. And, and it, you know, I haven't come even close to checking all the boxes, but, uh, Jeff is definitely one of them. So it, it was a real treat. You know, it was it was strange because I'm also a big Beatle fan and a big ELO fan. And I would always hear, you know, the Beatle music in his his in his bands and in, in Electrolyte Orchestra. I would hear it in his melodies. I would hear it in his harmonies. And then all of a sudden I hear him, you know, working with George Harrison, producing George Harrison albums and, and being in a member yeah. of the band. And that was very strange to hear that because now you're hearing him and the and you know one fourth of the Beatles together. Yeah, yeah. Was there and any his work with, um, with uh, on the anthology album with um, Real Love? You know, the, where they went back and found an old John Lennon demo and uh, on a cassette tape that was just you know really poor quality, but they you know fixed it up audio wise, and then the other three Beatles contributed, and Jeff produced that. Uh, free, free as a bird and, and Real Love, those two tracks, which are just you know Beatle worthy. They're so good. Yeah, those those came out, I believe, in the mid to late nineties, the anthology. Yeah. yeah, and that was like the first like new Beatles song, and that we were hearing again since they had broken up. That was that was a thrill to hear that, and um, it really was. Yeah, I forgot it's that Jeff had a big. Was yeah. there any like sort of techniques that you picked up from him or saw that you said, "Wow, I, I never never would have thought of that," or so that's where he gets that sound from. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, watching, um, you know, his engineer Steve J get get those big drum sounds and, um, you know, um, and 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 lots of room. Like there's, 
you know, it's a drum kit, but there's a microphone way over there. So you get that, that ambient sound, which um, is so signature to, to Jeff. Um, well, and the way it started is it was just, it just started with one song. Jeff um, told Brian, he, I'll produce this one song for you. And then of course, after that, Brian was like, can, can we do some more? And Jeff was like, well, well, I'm really busy, but as long as you keep sending me songs I like, I'll, I'll keep producing them. So that was the challenge. So we just like went to work. And, and so everything we wrote for that album, the one that Jeff produced was, we basically wrote it like, you know, think Jeff will like this? You think he'll like this? We, we wrote it for Jeff. Really. You're writing so to we impress were, Jeff Lynn. Cha channeling him all, all the way. So, <laughs> so he was like literally inspirational in, in that sense. We were just trying to write a record for him because as long as we delivered things he liked, he would keep sending his stuff back. And, and uh, it went on like that. It's pretty much a year back and forth because he was busy. So we'd make, we'd get his time every every once every few months he'd he'd find some time for us and um, so that, it took a long time for that album to come together and that's why but with the wait it was a, a real treat. I I find it interesting because um, I know you you have your own studio a home studio and and you've produced records and I find it interesting how you talked about the drum sound that Jeff Lynne had created that he was actually using the sound of the room as opposed to an effects device. Yeah, um, Mike play. I know. I know what drums. Mike placement places uh, plays a big role in, in creating a sound, but so does a room. Yeah. A lot of that's lost now because a lot of people are recording stuff, you know, on a computer in, in a small room, and and there is no room sound. Yeah, yeah, and you can't. I mean, you can replicate it with uh, with outboard gear, but it's just it's not really the same. I mean, especially that that John Bonham sound or the Led Zeppelin drum sound. Which was literally, I think it was just two or three mics on the drum kit. I think like bass drum, and then maybe left, left and right, and then another mic way, way far away um, to get that mammoth sound. I, I had dinner once with um, Eddie Kramer, the the engineer that recorded a lot of the Led Zeppelin stuff, and I was asking him about the Led Zeppelin drum sound, and and he said, you know, a lot of people come to me and want to hire me to get that sound. And I, I tell them, you know, I still got the mics that I used back then, and um, we can rent a drum kit exactly like John Bonham, but we don't have John Bonham on the drums, yeah. and that's that's the, you know. That's the key. <laughs> that's right. it, yeah. I've heard so many drummers talk about John Bonham. We, we interview so many drummers, and they all say the same thing. Nobody hit the drums like John Bonham. Truly, yeah, he was a one-off. Amazing. I, I saw Led Zeppelin at Madison Square Garden in 1977. Wow. Yeah, and um, you know it was an eight o'clock concert. They went on to nine. They didn't go on to nine thirty, but nobody cared. And and when they hit the stage, I mean, I've seen so many people, but seeing Led Zeppelin was just an entire different plane. Wow, I mean, I wish I'd seen them. Yeah, and that, that was uh back when you you know they would announce. A concert like that in a newspaper and you'd have to mail in and hope to get tickets wow for for them and i think i paid six dollars or something <laughs> like lower level madison square garden seats yeah a friend of mine has um still has her ticket from 1964 when the beatles played vancouver 
two dollars and fifty cents. Yeah, is that so? <laughs> yeah, and now you pay it. You're lucky, you know, eight hundred bucks for Bruce Springsteen or something. I mean, God. Yeah, it's much tougher now. And that's a bargain. I remember in the summer of '77, I had saw Zeppelin. Uh, then a week later at the Garden, I saw Pink Floyd, the Animals tour. And then in that same month, I saw Fleetwood Mac, the Rumors tour. And then I had also wow. Electric Light Orchestra. Everybody was just coming to the Garden. And, you know, you could afford tickets back then. Most of the tickets were between 5 and $10. Yeah. And um, they, were, they weren't that hard to get. You just went to, you know, to the Madison Square Garden box office. And everybody played Madison Square Garden. Wow. Gosh, I wish I'd grown up in New York. I, I mean, these are yeah. memories you can't recreate. That's no. I'm envious. Yeah. It was a it it was a great way to be 15 years old and and seeing all these famous bands. Yeah, that never leaves you. And I did see Springsteen in '78, who was just another one that was just unbelievable. Uh, in like that, yeah. All right, so um, speaking of classic rock, too, um, you had also worked with um. Aerosmith, and uh, I remember in the, in the early '80s, um, Aerosmith wasn't doing too well. They were playing uh, clubs. I actually saw them play a club on the island, and then you seemed to play a major role in their in their comeback. You wrote songs for their permanent vacation album. Am I correct? Yeah, I'm not sure if I about major role, but I was fortunate to to be part of their comeback. I mean, I was somewhat familiar with. Their history, obviously, from you know the first success in the early seventies, and by the late seventies, they were kind of floundering. Joe Joe had quit the band, and there was, I think, a lot of trouble with drugs and alcohol. And uh, I didn't know they'd quite got as far down as just playing clubs. But um, when I got asked to come on board, um, I, I was aware that they were, you know, a band that that was kind of in crisis. So when I first met them, it was my friend Bruce Fairburn who was producing and and he asked me to if I'd like to co-write with them and they were a little the band was somewhat reluctant I mean it was their label uh, Geffen John Claudner at Geffen Records was the one who said I want you guys to work with some outside writers and, and I think they were initially not really pleased about the idea so they came to me a little reluctantly I mean and they were all just out of rehab uh, freshly out of rehab, a, a little, little edgy, little, little touchy. But I just remember the very first day, Stephen and Joe walking into my into my studio, and you know, I, I mean, I'm a fan. So, I, in fact, with every artist I've ever worked with, you know, Ozzy or Alice or any of them, I'm, I'm a fan. So when these guys walk into your room, you're you're kind of freaking out. You know, you can't let them see that, but you know, you're pinching yourself like, wow, Stephen Tyler, Joe Perry. So we um. We just sat and chatted for a bit, you know, and it was we talked about our, the music we liked. We talked about the Stones and the Beatles and Led Zeppelin. And then we talked about our our kids and you know just stuff like that 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 kind of broke broke the ice and and um and and then we sat down and this would have been you know two o'clock in the afternoon and by dinner time we had you know a good beginning on the song Ragdoll that was the first thing we. We wrote, and so once you're rolling, once you have some some trust and some some common ground musically, and you all know you're coming from the same place, you know, like Beatles and Stones, and then you know you're going to the same place. 
it, it just it, it's a well-oiled machine after that so we spent the better part of a couple of months every every few days um writing and and by that time they were comfortable with having an outside guy in the room and um and uh, you know i was so pleased to see the whole thing to come together that they really it was their comeback album you know they were they were they were in trouble and they came out of that whole process with their success uh reinstated and and they went on to make a bunch of other great albums after that. That you were also a part of. I mean, you you wrote songs. The next, yeah, the next three. I did. I did three in a row. Yeah. And and those and albums. Bit later on, yeah. Those albums have sold like over thirty million copies, not including all the greatest hits packages. That I, I believe you're right. Yeah. 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 yeah, back when people used to actually go to the store and pay for music. Yeah. Well, in the eighties, I mean, that was when CDs were really flourishing. So people were really buying then, you know, people yeah. were buying the CDs because, you know, anybody who has, has a set of ears heard the difference in sound quality listening to CDs. 